My name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm the pastor that's working on his dissertation. Do pray for me. Got 150 pages to write, and I hate writing. So I need all the prayers I can get and the support. Um, but if you know by now, we are in our second week of a vision series, and it's entitled The Embodied Church. And if you weren't here last week or you were out of town, I do encourage you to actually go back to that podcast from last week and listen because it really lays down the foundation of why we are calling this the embodied church. We are embodied people. And just to kind of summarize from last week, if you think about the last 17 months with this pandemic, the pandemic from quarantines and isolation to wearing masks and, and socially distancing and not touching one another and giving handshakes and hugs has really has really sort of brought to the forefront the, the importance of the body. And last week we looked at, as we kicked off our vision series, the importance of the gospel, that it is the engine to the vehicle, that it is the motivation, the reason, the purpose of why we even exist as a, as a church. As we think about the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, it is basically seen in picture, in living color, through God who becomes flesh for us. And so as we look at this second aspect of our vision series, we're going to be looking at worship. That yes, motivation and the purpose of why we exist is the gospel, but how is that now lived out? Next week we're going to look at spiritual formation, and John Egan's going to be preaching on discipleship and community. Following week, Zach will be preaching on our next-gen ministries and what that means for us as the embodied church. And then the last week and our fifth week, we'll look at mission. Why are we called restoration? And what is the purpose of how God has called us? There are great churches in St. Louis. We're just one small church amidst hundreds. And what has God called us to? And how can we be faithful as a church? And so that's what we're going to look at. Let me pray as we go to the Lord, as we look at this aspect of the embodied church in worship. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for the vision you have given us leaders uh, to be able to see what it looks like to bring the gospel to bear in this specific community here in St. Louis. So Lord, I pray as we look at this uh, second theme or topic of worship, Lord, give us eyes to see, but also give us ears to hear. So Lord, we might be able to live out the calling you have given to us as a church, as a community. We pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. The 2020 Olympics in Tokyo came and went last Sunday. Some of us didn't watch any of it. Others of, of us watched all of it. And there's been a lot of conversation and dialogue, everything from Simone Biles, right? And we're not going to go there, don't worry. We'll keep all of our opinions and thoughts inside of us. But there were other things like great accomplishments and people overcoming all odds and redemption and stories that just move your heart. But I think what really cast a shadow over the entire Olympics was the empty stadiums. There were no fans that could go on and cheer and be spectators in this wonderful thing that happens every four years. And I think this was really brought to the light for me when Japan won gold in baseball for the first time ever. And here you see that image. And as transcendent and as glorious it is, as, as you see the joy in the players winning gold, there's something lost in the fact that there are no people in the stadium. 
Now I'm going to, not yet, Jason, show you a picture that shows to you how great of a pastor I am because I'm going to rejoice with those who rejoice, even though I'm a Cubs fan. But compare this picture now to the Cardinals in 2011 in Game 6 when Freeze hit that home run to take them to Game 7 and eventually win the World Series. There is something transcendent, something awe-inspiring, powerful, not just in the fact that the players are rejoicing, but the fact that the fans and the spectators are up on their feet celebrating this, this historic moment for the Cardinals. Now, we're just talking about fans and spectators. When we come to worship, we are not spectators. We are participants in this great service that God calls us to. He gathers us, and we participate in this great story of the gospel. Now, while our AV team has done a tremendous job during these last 17 months of being able to give us this embodied experience of being able to worship together over live stream and make it possible for us to join together in spirit in our living rooms, we have to admit that there is no substitute for being together here in this room, looking around at each other's faces, and to be a church family together each and every single Sunday morning. In other words, I am grateful for digital media, but I'm not satisfied, nor, nor should the church be as well. But I think the struggle and the tension we feel is that we might believe, yes, the embodied church matters, that we need to be together, the embodied presence is important, but we often believe our presence does not matter in worship. We believe our presence does not matter here. And I can confess here, I also believe that at times. And there's different reasons for that, right? For some of us, it might be convenience. It is so much easier to stay home and watch the service online. To have our coffee, our PJs. We don't have to wrangle all the kids to service. And that can be difficult. And so for convenience sake, it is easier and we believe that our presence here doesn't matter. For others of us, it's shame. We feel unworthy to be here because of personal circumstances in your life that you are going through. You don't want to be asked, how are you doing? Because then you'd have to open up a can of worms and you don't want to share everything that's going on in your life or in your heart. You feel judged for how your kids are behaving. Or you feel judged for what's going on in your personal life. And shame overwhelms you where you believe your presence doesn't matter here. But for others, it's priorities, right? It's just, I'm so busy at work. I'm so busy with my kids' sporting events or different activities that are going on that I just can't be here. And so my presence here doesn't matter. And yet... And yet, if we are embodied people, and we believe that embodied presence matters when it comes to corporate worship, we have to ask ourselves, how does this fact shape our experience and understanding of worship together on a Sunday morning? Why does that matter? And I want to look at that in three ways. First, I'm going to see that worship is gospel-centered. 
Secondly, that worship is communal. And then lastly, we're going to look at how worship is formational for us. So first, let's just take one at a time here. Embodied worship is gospel-centered. And what Noah just read for us this morning, we are reminded that from the gospel flows out worship. You see that in verse 9, after being described, after describing, Paul describing to the Philippian church of the gospel of Jesus, that God becomes flesh and takes on sin and forgives us and loves us. What do we see be the natural response of God's people? Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, what you see here is that worship flows out of the gospel. Think about when you saw that picture of Freeze hit that home run. What happens? The fans and spectators worship. They get up on their feet and they rejoice and scream from the top of their lungs. And if you've been here long enough, you have heard us say from the pulpit that we are all creatures of worship. We all worship something or someone, and we even confess that in our confession of sin this morning. Whatever you find significant, whatever you find beautiful, whatever you find worthy, we will worship it or him or her. And as people of God who follow Jesus, we are called out of the natural progression of believing in the gospel of this beautiful story that Jesus came and died for me, lived the life that I could not live. It doesn't depend on what I do or don't do. But because of Jesus' work alone, that he would save us, he would forgive us, call us his own and delight in us. When you reflect on that, it creates in our hearts a desire to worship this God. You see, gospel or embodied worship is gospel-centered. And here at Restoration, the pattern of our service, the pattern of our worship models the way the gospel has played out throughout history amongst God's people. When you think about our service, what is the first thing that happens? God calls us to worship. Whether you are a person who believes you are unworthy because of who you are, the things that have been said about you, the stories that you believe about yourselves, things that you have done that make you feel guilty, or you had an awesome week. Whatever you are going through, the amazing gospel story is God initiates and says, you are mine. I want you to come together and worship me because I love you. I want to be with you. And so God calls us to worship no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you've been through. And he says, I want you to be in my life. And so we respond in the call to worship like we did this morning. And we sing a song of his worthiness. But he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in our muck and our mess, in our shame and our guilt. What does he do? He says, I want to make you whole and cleanse you. I want to make you unbroken and heal you and mend you. And so what, he's, what does he do? He initiates this call to confession. He says, I want to forgive you. Much like Isaiah in the presence of this holy God who says, you are worthy God forgives him and cleanses him and restores him. And we respond. How? With thanksgiving in a song. We give of our tithes and offerings. And then what happens? God, after making us whole and renewed and forgiven, he says, I want to consecrate you. Which is just another word to say, I'm going to instruct you with my word. 
so that you might be able to know what it means to live and become conformed into my image, to be a blessing and a light to the world. You see this progression of the gospel. And then what does he do after he instructs us? He brings us to the table and says, I want to fellowship with you. I want to commune with you. I want to feed you. And that is the most intimate form and expression here at the table that he wants to commune with us. And then he commissions us out. He sends us out. This is the gospel story. And in each aspect of this story, we respond. He initiates, and we're, we just respond to this gracious invitation of the gospel. This is what embodied worship is. It is gospel-centered. And we get to rehearse this gospel story every single week together as the embodied church. Which brings me to the second point here, which is worship is communal. In Acts 16, we won't go there, but Acts 16 gives us the account of how this church in Philippi is born. Paul goes there with some other brothers, Silas and Luke, and when he goes there, he brings the gospel to bear, and guess what kind of people begin this church? You hear, you hear of a businesswoman named Lydia who sells purple goods and clothing, and her and her entire family join the church. Because they believe in God. Paul then meets a demon-possessed girl, a slave girl. She comes to Jesus, and she is part of this church. And then in Acts 16, it finishes with the story of a Philippian jailer who's most likely a Roman soldier. And him and his entire family come to know Jesus, and they form this church. I mean, think about how diverse it is. You have a Gentile businesswoman, a former demonic slave girl, and a former Roman centurion or soldier. And this forms the foundation of this church, a diverse group of people. And what does Paul say? If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, what does Paul describe the church and introduce the church or greet the church as? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. You see, the embodied church is communal, made up of diverse people here in this room with elders and deacons and officers, leadership and staff. We form this church and we are saints. We are saints and we gather together and we form this embodied church community. Don't ever underestimate your presence here. Think about, think about this. Let me just do an exercise with us. Think about the people in your periphery in your life. It could be a coworker that is in the periphery of your life that maybe you say hi and you catch up every now and then at the water cooler. It could be a neighbor that you run into while you jog or you're mowing the lawn and you say hello and you, say, you ask those simple questions of how are you doing, how's the family. Think about your hairdresser or the person that cuts your hair. Think about... Uh, all sorts of people that are on the periphery of your life. There's a sociologist named Mark Granovetter, and he gave a term for this relationship, and he called it weak ties. Weak ties. These are the people on the periphery of your life. Do you know there are weak ties here at this church that we have lost because of COVID? The people after service that you would grab a cup of coffee with and you would shoot the breeze and catch up on, hey, how's life? How's work last week? Oh, what, where are you going this week for travel? How are your kids? What events are they doing? What sporting event? These little 
moments that we took for granted that we kind of blew off thinking, oh, these, these people, these relationships don't actually matter because I don't see them every single day. I don't live with them. But all sorts of these relationships were lost because of the pandemic here in this embodied church at Restoration. Just to share a story of how this is actually true was during the pandemic when we weren't worshiping here in person. And we were talking to Jason Ree, and I got his permission. Jason Ree, who's a member of our church, he's a surgeon. And we were talking to him about the impacts of the pandemic. And he kept saying this. He kept saying, man, I miss Adam Hancock, who's another member of our church. He's like, I haven't seen Adam Hancock in so long. And we're like, dude, you don't even hang out with Adam Hancock. Like, why do you miss him so much? He's like, I don't know, but I do. Like, on those Sunday mornings where we shoot the breeze, he's just a cool guy, and I want to see him. But I haven't seen him. We're like, just give him a call, dude. Why don't you call him or, like, invite him over to your backyard? He's like, yeah, but he never did. I mean, these are the weak ties and the sense of loss that we have. And that's why I say your presence matters here because even in those weak ties, we have lost those relationships when we don't come together as the embodied church on Sunday mornings to worship. So much of our humanity was stripped. So much of our humanity was stripped when we lost the opportunities to interact, to smile, to see each other's faces, to give hugs, and to give handshakes and fist bumps. But you see, Paul talks about how important these relationships are. In chapter 2, verse 28, Look at what Paul says. Epaphroditus comes to Paul to give a sacrifice, an offering, money to support him. Epaphroditus almost dies. And this is what Paul says. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for, the, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You see that? There was something lacking. And for Paul, he's feeling so much anxiety that he needs to do something about it. And he sends Paul or Epaphroditus back to Philippi. We need one another. There's a longing in our hearts to see this kind of worship that is communal. But the last thing that we have to look at and why our presence matters is that worship is formational. Worship is formational. Turn to chapter 4 of Philippians, and let's look at verse 8 and 9. That's on 982 if you're using the church Bible. But read and listen. Listen to what Paul says that we are called to do when we think about such good things and what is true and what is honorable. Listen to what he says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, right? So he's saying use your mind. Think about it. Meditate on it. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, then what does he say? Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's not just a matter of thinking. It's not a matter of just thought. Like I said last week, our, our faith in gospel isn't just a set of propositions, but worship is formational and we are called to practice these things with our bodies so that it forms us and reforms us and reshapes us so that we might become more like Christ and embody the gospel of Jesus. And because the gospel affects the whole person, 
our service affects the heart through beautiful music and compelling truth. It should engage the heart. It should form our minds through substantive lyrics and teaching. But here's the thing we don't think about. It also forms and shapes our body by participation in readings, in singing, in communion, in lifting up our hands, in sitting and standing. In these ways, we are being formed and reformed in the gospel as we worship together. You see, liturgy, ritual, these things foster this deep unity between doctrinal beliefs and embodied practice. These things are interlinked together. And that's why when we come to church, we sit, we stand, we taste, we sing, we raise our hands. Here's something that D.D. Murphy wrote in his book, Teaching That Transforms. He says, the knowledge imparted in worship is a knowledge that can be known only in the doing of it. It is at heart bodily and performative. We are habituated to and in the knowledge of the Christian faith by the ritual performance that is worship, so that a deep unity between doctrine and practice is taken for granted. I shared this illustration early on in the pandemic, but when we were just worshiping virtually, I said how Back in the day, I used to pop in a DVD and I would work out to Jillian Michaels. That's how much I love my wife. We worked together with Jillian Michaels. But do you think I popped that video in and sat in the living room on the couch and said, yeah, Jillian Michaels, motivate me, let's go. No, I got up, I did push-ups, I did sit-ups, I did planks, I did high knee kicks, whatever, and sweat and drenched my shirt. Why? Because that workout was formational when we think about exercise and working out. The same is with worship. It's not an exercise of the mind only. We are working out our bodies so that we are formed in all of our being to become more like Christ and to be salt and light to the world. Tish Warren, I quoted her last week. She wrote a previous book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And she linked how our, how our bodily acts and acts of the soul are always interlinked together. She shared about how the posture of prayer, right, bending the body, has a real connection with the bending of the soul. She shared about how she, after seminary, went through a really dark, dark, dark period in her life. And what she shared was that she could no longer pray to God. She didn't have the words to say nothing would come out of her mouth. But she realized, you know what she could do? She could kneel. And so she knelt. And she knelt and knelt and knelt over and over again. And through the kneeling, eventually it led her back to have words to pray. We have to see here how much our body and our actions inform our souls. It's not always the soul that informs our bodies, but it works the other way around. Think about singing. We always think about singing to God. But listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5.19. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody of the Lord with your heart. 
Do you see that? We are called to minister to one another. As we sing, as we pray, when there are others here in this room that are going through dark periods in their life, we are singing to them. We are ministering to their broken heart and their soul. And they are able to hear the songs of their saints, brothers and sisters, preaching, ministering, caring for them. That is what I mean when I say worship is formational. Think about the rising and sitting. We don't do that just because, oh, I want you to stand. But it forms our hearts as we respond to God's call. We want to stand in His presence. When we lift our hands for the doxology, it's because we want to give thanks to Him. And we're lifting up our hands saying, we thank you, God. When we receive the benediction and raise our hands again, what is it representing? It's representing, I want to receive God's grace and blessing so that I can actually go into the world and be a light. When we confess our sin, you're hearing other saints confessing their sin. And you realize we are all on the same page. We're all on the same level playing field. And we're able to say we are all broken. But then what do you hear? God's forgiveness. We always say every week, lift up your heads. Lift up your hearts. Why? Because our bodies create and tell us something about our hearts. <coughs> From a posture of downward faces, we get to lift up our heads and know we are forgiven. And he delights in his creatures. When we hear babies cry, we are reminded that we made vows to see that child grow up in the fear and love of the Lord. One person shared about how when God's word is preached from the pulpit, they are more certain to believe God's word when they are here and not alone or listening to a podcast. Think about how that informs and shapes us. Think about the Lord's Supper. A neuroscientist, Thomas Fuchs, this is what he said about the Lord's Supper. We are experiencing the past, the present, and the future presence of Christ himself, who both transcends history and pervades it. The collective body memory of the church throughout the ages renews our participation in Christ's life every time we eat the bread and drink the, drink the wine. In essence, what I'm trying to share with you here this morning about these different habits and liturgies and rituals that we do each and every single Sunday is that rituals and liturgies are never something that they do, that, that you do. Rituals are never just something that you do, but rather they do something to you. They form us and they shape us as we practice together as the embodied church. They remind us that there is a kind of believing that we do with our hands. There's a kind of believing and knowing that we do on our knees, flat on our faces as we raise our hands and sing to one another. There's a knowing and believing that happens with our bodies. So as we think about our church and the vision of worship, yes, we will, that doesn't mean we will cut off our virtual services. But think about it this way. The virtual service online is access to the front door of the church. And we've actually have testimonies of people who checked out our church, who moved into the city, who are investigating the faith, 
who are non-Christians, and they're watching and listening. And it's the front door to our church. But if we want to believe in this gospel-centered worship that is communal and formational, we want to bring them into the dining room. And that's what worship is for, to experience the gospel, the intimacy that happens as a community here at Restoration. Let me share with you a story as we close that really hits this home for us. The Atlantic ran an article about these two friends, Andy and Gabe. And these two, these two guys have been friends for a long time, and they actually played in a band together. And ever since they started playing on this band together in 2000 in Nashville, they were friends from the beginning. But here's what's interesting. They lived in Nashville only about a mile and a half apart. And as you know, dudes, we don't do a good job of keeping in touch. And so they came up with this silly, dorky idea that once a week, every Monday, they would leave their house a mile and a half apart at the same time and meet equidistant at this one park. And as they approached each other, this is what they did. They would clap, snap, and give a high five and continue on the way back home. <laughs> it was a way for them to stay in touch at least once a week to be able to form this relationship that they had with one another. But 2020 threw a curveball. And what happened in 2020 was Gabe had some kind of encephalitis that basically wreaked havoc on his memory, and he forgot basically his whole life. He forgot that he owned this successful uh, taco shop. He forgot about everything of their relationship with Gabe and Andy. And as Gabe was recovering in the hospital, Andy wanted to give his wife a break, and so he stayed overnight with Gabe. And he told Gabe, Gabe, I'm going to do something that just seems really odd and out of the left field, but I want you to give me a high five as I approach you. And so as Andy approached Gabe to give a high five, Gabe, who's lost his memory, goes, <laughs> high five. And Andy broke down in tears. Because while Gabe's memory would not remember that, his body remembered the fact that this was a ritual and part of their friendship. As Gabe reflected on this, he told the Atlantic this, typically when I think about the routine, it means something that comes automatically, right? It's just built into us. And the high five is that routine in which we do it every single week. We know it's coming, but the joy and the reward that comes out of it, that's not routine. We're dedicated to each other, and we're showing each other in a way other than just calling and saying, hey, I love you. We're actually doing something, and that hasn't gotten old. That's what I'm talking about. Embodied church in worship means, yes, there's something routine about coming every single week, but what's not routine is the God of the universe who becomes flesh and meets with his creatures and says, I love you. You are forgiven. I want to redeem you. I want to consecrate you. I want to come to the table in fellowship with you, and I want to send you out because you are mine. I delight in you. That is the joy of the gospel that we together as a community experience and that forms us and shapes us to become people who not only love God and love people, but are changed from the inside out to become like him. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for this beautiful gospel. This beautiful gospel that is embodied in the liturgy and the rituals that we do every single week. So Lord, even now as we come to the table, Lord, may it form us and shape us, not just remembering in our heads and in our minds of what you have done and of your love for us, but that the eating, the drinking, the touch, the smell would form us to not only be people who would be reminded of your sacrifice and your love, but that it would form us so that we would be people of sacrifice and love for others. Oh, Lord, do that good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.